<laughs> now I can see my talk. So my voice can tend to dip a little, so if you, for some reason, can't hear, then just raise your hand. So this evening, in a, in a similar way that we, uh, that Marie talked very beautifully yesterday about the first foundation of mindfulness being a very central, uh, fundamental, foundational piece of this practice, uh, what I want to give tonight, the teaching on some of the Four Noble Truths is also one of those platform, one of those foundational teachings that you probably all know really well, both in your experience, you may have heard talks, hundreds of talks on this theme. If you've sat long enough, you probably have. And there seems to be no end to which we can plumb the depth of this teaching. Suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha said, I teach one thing, one thing only, suffering and its end. So unless somebody here has come to the end of suffering, please raise your hand. (laughs) Okay, you may give this talk. (laughs) Then this teaching still applies. And so I invite you to have a beginner's mind with this teaching. And I'm always sort of in awe or inspired myself when I hear this teaching, particularly like hearing it from Achan Sumedho, who has made of this teaching his life practice these last 40-some years and never ceases to delight in giving teachings about it and exploring the subtlety and depth. So I wanted to start with a poem that speaks a little to both sides of this teaching. It's from Anna Akhmatova, called Everything is Plundered. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close, the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. Something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our beast breast for centuries. Everything is plundered, betrayed, and sold. sold. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, the winds blow cherries into town. Blow summer into town, sorry. Cherries blow summer into town. I should read this correctly. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. The miraculous, the mystery, the beautiful touches the deep and dark places in our lives, in our hearts, in our bodies. 
So both are true. We, we can touch very deep places of despair and hopelessness and fear and anxiety and sadness and grief and loss. And many of you are speaking to this in your interviews. It's one of the reasons why I'm giving this talk tonight. And the cherries are blowing summer into town. Spring is here amidst the storms. It's a great metaphor. There's all this wild rain and wind and storms and great clouds. And yet the flowers are emerging in the midst of it all. The grasses are growing. The blossoms are still opening. Just like we do. And so um, we're asked in this life and this practice, how do we meet all of that? How do we hold that? How do we be with it with an open heart so we don't close down with bitterness and despair? We don't bypass over it into a Pollyannish bliss. But we meet the whole catastrophe, as it were. One of the things that I've noticed from my own experience uh, in practice, on retreat and in life, is how humbling they are. Is there anybody here not humbled by this practice? (laughs) by your mind, the crazy mind, by the body, by the unknown, by the uncertainty, by the mystery. You know, it's humbling. And not in a bad way. I think it's a very beautiful quality that emerges in this practice, one of humility. Suffering in some ways is a great equalizer. It's what unites us, it's what we share. It's not all that we share. But here uh, on retreat and in this practice, we have a different orientation to suffering. In our lives, normally, uh, ordinarily, we'll do whatever we can to avoid it, to distract ourselves from it, to get really busy, to be really important, to do something to get the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, whatever it is your chosen distraction of choice. But here the invitation is to take refuge in what's true, in the way things are, both in the beauty and the sorrow, which means to meet it. This is from the Sagadat. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. And you will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And the ending of this pattern with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So maybe you're learning that in accepting, turning, meeting uh, pain, there's a deeper joy, a deeper well-being that arises deeper than any pleasure can give us. So there's a certain paradox in this teaching. It seems counterintuitive that to turn towards our pain would actually 
take us to a deeper place than joy, than pleasure. So one of the ways of holding this experience in our meditation on retreat, it's like a laboratory. We're creating very ideal conditions in order to study and examine ourselves, our minds, our hearts, reality, where we're unhindered, undistracted, uh, so we can really see what's happening. We can see the causes, we can see, we can understand its nature, we can understand how to be free in the midst of it. This is from Suzuki Roshi. You don't really know what it means to sit in the meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital. And there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and your thoughts and worries. And you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. Does that sound familiar? Finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all for 14 days or 44 days or however many days it is. Long time to be sitting in the midst of it all. So as Ajahn Chah says, by running away from suffering we run towards it. We spend a lot of time running away from suffering. And what have we found out? It doesn't really work. You can't quite run fast enough. It's somehow we run around the corner, we run around the block, and it comes around the other side. Whichever way we go, it will find us. Bypassing doesn't work. If it worked, we would teach it. <laughs> We've tried it. <laughs> We tried every avoidance strategy. You know, we do them until we see this really isn't working. You know, I remember when I, uh, for the first, you know, ten years or maybe more, dozen years of my practice, I always felt like right underneath the surface was a layer of sadness, and I kept waiting for it to go away. I kept waiting for it to be over. Like enough already. How many? How many years? Sadness. But I never actually turned towards it. I just hoped it would go away. I just, by ignoring it or pushing it to the side, I just hoped I would sort of grow out of it. But it was, it was only, as these things go, only by really looking at it, feeling it, sensing it, understanding it, allowing it, that it shifted. And then no longer, it's no longer, no longer was that, that substrata that I would drop into. And it was a great lesson in how to turn into, to lean into, to open to. I came across some interesting research today in Diana Winston's new book on mindfulness. And she writes, researchers in Bath, England, that's Bath here, in Bath, England, asked this question of 105 patients attending a pain management course. They asked the patients to complete mindfulness questionnaires along with self-reported measures of pain and distress. People with lower scores on mindfulness were those who experienced greater levels of pain, had more depression associated with the pain, had more pain-related anxiety, 
and suffered more physical and psychosocial disability because of the pain. So ordinarily we might think people with mindfulness would be more aware of the pain and experience that more, but actually because of the way mindfulness embraces and uh, imbues our experience with a quality of spaciousness, with a quality of non-reactivity, with a quality of non-strife, that the actual pain and discontent reduces. So I wrote a poem, I've been writing a lot of poetry recently, which has been a little fun hobby for me. And uh, this poem jumped out. I thought I'd share it. It's called Not Running From Here. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, stripped bare, and it feels like the wind will pierce those places that lay open and exposed. At times in this life you don't have a choice but to pick up where you left off, to make a cup of tea, to sit quietly in the garden of your creation, and take in the day, to turn towards exactly where you are. You could always pretend Try putting on a face other than your own, or try avoiding the whole damn thing. But that's a game that's never worked, and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, and makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more empty. But when you surrender, you embrace your loneliness and the starved parts of your being, and touch the void you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fallen to the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has always been waiting, that is right here. So this is this practice, it's the practice of not running, of not hiding, of being open to whatever wants to reveal itself. And that includes, as I've been mentioning, turning towards difficulty, pain, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, And to know that it's possible to find peace and ease in the midst of that. And I'm sure many of you have been exploring that. So going back to the Buddha and his journey, his life, even though he was raised in somewhat luxurious circumstances for the time, as a son of a nobleman, and supposedly had palaces and whatnot. He knew suffering from the moment he took birth. The moment he took birth, his mother died. Intimate to suffering, no matter how much pandering he received. And in his life as a teacher, he had a lot of enemies. Life was threatened. He got sick. He had backache. He had troubles with his, his students and his monks and his nuns and had to 
navigate the very complex political system that he lived in. And yet it's clear that no matter what circumstances afflicted him, he was able to find peace amidst conditions. There was one town he went to, I forget the the exact details of the story, um, and there'd been some gossip and some uh, disrepute about him and his teaching and his followers. And so he went to this town and um, with his monks and uh, Ananda said, oh, let's get out of here because these people don't like us. We won't get any food. Let's go to the next town. It'll be easier. And the Buddha said, no, we'll just sit here and receive what they have to say. We'll bear it. And then that happened and then, and then we'll move on. Clearly someone deeply at ease even when circumstances were antagonistic. This is from the poet Rashani who beautifully explores in this poem the power of when we go into these difficult places in ourselves, in our lives, the the strength and redemption that can happen. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. To the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken. That is our birthright, it's our nature. The heart actually doesn't break, it feels like sometimes it's breaking. Sometimes it feels like it's broken, but it actually doesn't break. And when we're able to go into the midst of that heartache or wound or sorrow, healing can happen, wholeness can happen. And as teachers, and we talk about this uh, when we meet, um, we hear a lot of the sorrow and the struggle and the pain. You know, you come into the room and everyone's sitting here like a Buddha, looking very serene, looking very content, a little equanimous smile, walking very gracefully, and you would have no idea of the volcanoes and the deep places that are going on in here, the darkness, the sorrow, the, but also the joy and the, and the ecstasy. You know, both are true. But we also talk about the, you know, I talk about, and I just see when, I, when I'm listening to my colleagues talking about working with people, this is the, the beautiful compassion that arises in response to that, the open-heartedness that's needed. And if there's anything that's needed, and Leela spoke beautifully to this in her talk the other night, is this fusion of awareness and kindness, this fusion of mindfulness and love, mindfulness and compassion. 
that with a, if, if, our, if our presence isn't imbued with warmth, with a tenderness, with a kindness, it's very hard for the heart to open. It's very hard to be with great suffering with coolness. It's just like a flower with a, or a garden. We need supportive conditions to open. And one of the most supportive conditions is to hold ourselves tenderly yeah, with a warmth, with an affection, with a, with a supportiveness, with a kindness. So I remember working with a student at IMS in Barry, and um, she was a, a farmer. And uh, she came in, she talked about having this really tight, hard knot or block in her heart, heart center. And so we did some work inviting her to feel it and open to it and sense it like we've done with a lot of you. We just take the, sort of this kind, warm presence into, that, into the very place that feels impenetrable, like a, like a wall or a... In her case, um, it felt like a, a nut, like a walnut, just a s- solid, dense place in her heart. And, you know, we touched some, the outer layers of the tightness and the resistance and the pain. And, and, and so I just asked her to, to keep, you know, reining a sense of kindness into that, into the hardness and just to see, to be curious, not to get rid of it, uh, but just to see what was there and to feel it and understand it. So she, we worked with each other for, for a few days. And towards the end of the retreat, she, she came back and, and gave an update and said, you know, I... Over the days, it's felt like the tears, uh, the tears that were, were in that pain were like, it like watered the seed. It watered that hard nut. And the seed began to crack open. And, and towards the end, there was a little sprout, a little shoot, like a little bean sprout of life. And the, the nut was no longer dense, but it was opening. And there was roots going down into, into lower, into a body. And it's just a beautiful metaphor of what happens when we bring that warmth, the affection in the attention to the hard, closed, difficult, dense places. And opening can happen. We learn how to be uh, with a sense of ease in the middle of it. This is from the writer Henry Miller, talking about, writing about a dream. The same dream returned each night until I dared not go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in the dream I saw it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again, clutched at my clothes, until I thought if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps then I could sleep. And I, bent its, and I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life into one's arms. So I just think that's a beautiful metaphor, you know, how we have these broken, split-off, rejected parts of ourselves that may not have had the light of kindness and presence for many, many years or decades. And at some point, as he says very beautifully, 
and they start clutching at us, you know, pulling on our clothes. Hello, hello, remember me? Abandonment, loneliness, isolation, despair. I'm here, I'm not going away. There's only one thing that makes it go away, is your presence. You've spent a lifetime looking for it outside of yourself or somebody else to fix, therapist, lover, partner, whatever, friends. And we, at some point, have to make that turn. Some of us have to learn that again and again and again with the broken, split-off parts of ourselves. And it's not just one turning. It'd be nice if it was just one turning <laughs> and all dissolved. <laughs> and occasionally it can. You know, it, it's something one of my first teachers said, he said, no matter how long we've had a pattern or a difficulty or pain or an obstacle, and we may, that we may have had that for decades, three, four, five decades, the length of the time that we've had a pattern in no way dictates the length of time it takes to heal and dissolve it. It can dissolve in a moment, in a moment of clear seeing, in a moment of compassion, there can be a tremendous opening. It may not disappear, we may work on that with many levels, but to not feel like, well, I've had this for 40 years, it's going to take at least 40 years to get rid of it or to heal it or to work through it. No, we don't know. We don't know. We just have to turn and meet it in the moment and see what happens. So I want to read a story that Jack has in his, uh, one of his books um, from D.S. Bennett. And this is speaking to, again, uh, how we turn to ourselves, but sometimes we know instinctively what to do. So she writes, Motherhood always assured me that any child as naughty as I was she would say, should be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike you dead. (laughs) She would speak these words softly, regretfully, as I was saddened by her errant daughter's fate. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anyone ever love you? How could anyone ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping or would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me, There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed, I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now. Everything will be all right, I love you. Everything will be all right. I love you. So we have that instinctual knowing within us 
of what it takes to heal, what it takes to love ourselves. We all have this capacity that she displayed beautifully. So just like in the poem that I read the other day from Goa Canal, where he talks about the bud, we, uh, we put a hand on the brow of the flower and we tell it in words and in touch it is lovely. And he says, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And many, many of us, that's also part of our practice. Part of the healing of the suffering is to reteach ourselves our loveliness. Put a hand on the brow of ourselves, tell ourselves in words, in touch, in action, that we are worthy to be loved. So, so I've already touched on aspects of suffering. I want to say a little more about, about that. And also just to notice as you're listening to this talk, what ha- what's happening for you as you hear about suffering, as you hear about compassion, as you hear about transforming suffering, what's the response that goes on in your being? Open, closed, curious. So there's no moving through this world without our dose of suffering, a dose of pain. The Buddha said, what is suffering? Birth is suffering. So right there, we're stuck. (laughs) Birth is suffering. Old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering. Anybody here not got what they want yet? Losing what we have is suffering. Age, vitality, friends, loved ones. Oh, what happened in in this latest... Uh, economic crash, how much loss there's been, economic, social, stability, security, not losing, um, being separated from that which we love, another cause of suffering. Separating from our true nature, being the deepest source of suffering. Suffering of the body, dukkha dukkha, as the Buddha called it. You know, just sitting still long enough, we'll come across the suffering of the body. All the chronic illnesses that we may have, or the injuries, aging, tiredness. Suffering of the mind. Anybody notice the suffering of the mind? Anybody not notice the suffering of the mind? The suffering of the untrained mind? Yeah. The monkey mind, the, the puppy mind. The catastrophizing mind. I was just reading another piece of research today of how the, the brain registers and remembers and records and anticipates negative experiences and stimuli 
many, many, many times greater than positive ones. So our mind orients, remembers, anticipates, expects much more negative things to happen, which is why we do catastrophizing mind. That's the, that's the anticipatory mind trying to prepare for disaster. The disaster preparedness mind. There's a lot in, in Marin County, there's a lot of talk about you know, being prepared for the disaster, whatever disaster that is, and it's like the catastrophe mind blown large. Not, this, not a bad thing to prepare for these things, but um, it just instills more fear in my experience. So to watch that mind, watch, what's the patterns of mind that create suffering? The proliferating mind, the judging mind. We could probably get a list of a hundred kinds of minds that are suffering. Right? The comparing mind. Anybody doing any comparing here? Who's the slowest yogi walking? Who can sit the longest? Who gets up the earliest or sits the latest? It's just what we do. It's what the ego mind does. It compares better than, less than, same as. And it's always unsettling because it's always changing. You think you're sitting the longest in the hall and someone sits down next to you and they sit for five hours. You can't believe it. You have to rearrange the whole pecking order in the room. My definition of, of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be in this human body, this human life, with a heart and a mind and a body. Yeah. Not easy. Difficult to bear is another translation. And again, the practice comes back to what is this? How am I meeting this? Viktor Frankl says, it's not the load that wears us down, but how we bear it, how we carry it. How are we bearing and carrying the load that we've been asked to carry? We've all been asked to carry a burden in this life, or many. So the Buddha invites us, he says, that this first noble truth is to be understood, to stand under, to feel intimately, to not shy away from to know for ourselves, this is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. <clears throat> Talking about the, the first and the third truth, the truth of cessation of suffering. To allow the truth of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering. Then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom and despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So here on the retreat, we have this luxury of time. We have the luxury to see, to pay attention, to use all the concentration of mindfulness you're developing to see things arise and pass into cessation. Many of you are already exploring this. To see, no matter how strong something arises in the sitting, grief, longing, lust, 
fear, despair, rage, emptiness arises, triggered by conditions, stays around for a while, sometimes for an eternity, but it's never really an eternity, and at some point passes away, passes into cessation. If we don't react, if we don't do anything with it, it will by itself cease. It will by itself pass into cessation. So there are many, many moments of cessation, of peace. What happens when something passes into cessation, if we pay attention, often an experience of peace. So next time something really powerful blows through, and next the storm, rage, lust. Lust is a really fun place to work with it. Some image, some fantasy comes up, rips through the body, heat, passion, longing, stays around for a while, passes away. When 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 that desire isn't fed, what's left? There's peace, which is so much more peaceful and delicious than whatever fantasy got kicked up. So as so we want to be looking at not just what's happening, but how we relate to it. So the second noble truth is more exploring our relationship to whatever's arising. What are you bringing? What are you adding to? What are you doing with the various myriad phenomena, feelings, thoughts, sensations, impressions that come and go. Yeah. Liking, not liking, hating, grasping, controlling, holding on, fear. Yeah. To pay attention, to see how we add to uh, our stress, our difficulty. And often we forget to do this. We see what's happening. Someone's coughing and we're really frustrated and we think, if only they stop coughing, then I could you know, go back to jhana. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm really pissed off. I'm really frustrated. I'm really attached to that moment of peace. I'm attached to the stillness. Oh yeah, so if I'm attached, guess what happens? I resist anything that interferes with my stillness. Anybody here not attached to stillness? and peace, and clarity, and openness, yeah, and joy. Right? Anything that interferes with that, knee pain, sounds, unwanted thoughts, right? what happens? There's a contraction, because when there's no mindfulness, there's graspings holding on to the beautiful states, which, become, which of course become less beautiful the more that we suffocate them in our, in our grasping. Yeah? So as the poet Hafiz puts it, Hafez, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. (laughs) You, You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Which, guess what? We do all the time. A little bit of lust, a little bit of greed, a little bit of envy, stir it up, feel miserable for the morning, a little bit of hatred in the afternoon, a little bit of hostility, and yeah. And we have a little hindrance party, you know. 
and we wonder why we're miserable. <laughs> we blame the weather and the food and teachers and uh, who knows what we blame, anything. You know. And he also says, you have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start laughing and drawing blueprints and gathering our talented friends. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So that's what we're doing here. We're turning the ingredients of our lives into joy. Yeah? Presence, clarity, concentration, and the factors of awakening, really. The, 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 the factors that turn our life existence into joy, including joy. So to notice, to notice these tendencies, you know, we all have our our biases, where we lean, the aversive types in the room, the grasping types in the room, the deluded types, these are the three personality types. Knowing our leaning, knowing our tendency, where do we lean, where do we flavor our experience? Are we always seeking something other than what's here? Is this moment never quite enough? Is this meditation never quite good enough, calm enough, open enough? This emptiness not quite clear enough? Speaking of um, listening to Marie talk about Punjaji, I also studied a lot with Punjaji, which was a total blessing. And one of the things he used to say was, this is it, this is it. This is it. Like, stop searching. Stop waiting. Stop pretending. This is here. It is. It's right in front of you. It's only you're ceasing to believe that that this is it, that you think it isn't it. And my first response to that was, "Really? (laughs) (laughs) This this old dusty body and this India, dirty, grimy, polluted city, Lucknow. This is it. Come on. It must be more celestial, more divine, more beautiful." And at other times, sitting in the midst of the traffic and the pollution and the blue smoke and the haze, and I was like, ah, oh, this is it. This is it. This is it. This very body, this very breath, this very life, this whatever it is, this is it. So notice how you relate to that, how this is it. You know? Whether you're in uh, you know, kind of bus stop mode, you know, just waiting for the next thing that's, that's going to be better than this. Yeah, maybe it's lunch, maybe it's dinner, maybe it's who knows what. So I'm pausing a little because I've barely got through the beginning of my talk. And... uh, (laughs) You know, the whole of the Dharma is contained within the Four Noble Truths, so you know, forgive me for... <laughs> but I won't go into all the... <laughs> so... So what to say? So one of the things I think is important 
as we move into these difficult places in ourselves is also to have a sense of lightness, to not take ourselves too seriously. Really important to, um, you know, as Wavy Gravy says, if you don't, if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. You know, we're we're funny. We're wacky. We're crazy. We're 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 very odd. We're idiosyncratic. We do these odd things and expect everybody else to behave the same way that we do. And if they don't, they're weird. You know. So this is um, uh, uh, speaking to uh, actually the quality of patience, but it also spins a, a lightness around how we can do that, how we can work with difficulty. Um, so there's a man uh, observing a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in the basket in her, in her shopping cart. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and the mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, now Monica, now Monica we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle and of course, the little girl began to shout for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. And her mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go. Then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and we can all take a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he said. Whereupon the mother replied, What do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. So, good to have patience with ourselves. You can see the parents particularly liking that one. So, those times that we're working with our difficulty, our pain, they are some of the deepest dharma doors that we ever walk through. I know in my own practice, in the times that I've struggled with my own pain and despair and sorrow and loneliness and grief and abandonment and terror, I would never wish them on anybody, would never wish to go through some of them again, although sometimes they re-arise. That is always uncertain. But they've also been the things that I think have taught me most on this journey. So I remember being in the middle of a long retreat uh, in IMS where some very, very deep pain and trauma surfaced that I had no idea was in there as often we don't. And I've been practicing for maybe 12, 15 years, I don't know, something, quite a while. And, um, but it was really strong and it really threw me 
off my center for, for quite a while. And um, tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. And, um, and what, what was interesting, what, what felt like the fruit of my practice all those years was that what was able to be present was a, was a presence and compassion. And I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I wasn't trying to have a loving presence. It's just, that's just, that was, and I was sort of flattened. And that's what came through. And sometimes we don't know the strength and the power of our practice until we get flattened, until we're up against the wall with some great difficulty. And we see all these years, all these moments of mindfulness and kindness and patience and self-acceptance have been filling the bucket drop by drop. And that, that, that experience, which ended up becoming a, what I call my dark year of the soul, because dark nights never last just a night. They're usually, you know, <laughs> how large. <laughs> that it really, it really turned my life around. I was heading in one direction, and life said, Mm-mm, that's not where you're going. And uh, it, it tremendously opened the heart. And uh, I'm forever bl- grateful for that, however painful and difficult it was. And I, as I said, wouldn't wish that on anybody, but it's sometimes that's what it takes to open the heart, to really know the depth of compassion. Rumi writes, If God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, if God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, Rumi would say there would not be one thought, one feeling, or one act that, that I would not bow down to. There would not be one thought, not one feeling, not one act I would not bow down to. Because all of these things are what help us open. It's not all that helps us open. We can also open through joy and love and clarity. But we really open also going deeply into these difficult places. This is from the poet Ryokan, who although was a monk and a hermit up in the mountains of Japan, um, clearly had tremendous connection and compassion for the world. When I think about the misery of those in the world, their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Nothing makes me more happy than the Buddha Amida's vow to save everyone. So that can be the fruit of our practice to, you know, that one of the, the, the doorways that uh, working with suffering takes us into is that it can depersonalize our pain. It can take us out from the sense, oh, it's just me, it's just mine, I must have done something wrong, to, no, this is the universal pain. It's not just my pain. It is what connects me with every living, suffering being and creature in this life. Every being that's aging or sick or in, in emotional turmoil or lonely. And so as we patiently open 
to the the full realm of our experience, both beautiful and sorrowful. And we develop the steadiness of equanimity that arises through mindfulness practice. We learn to find that ballast, that sense of stability that's no longer necessarily looking for conditions and things to be a certain way. Where we stop trying to fix and control the world according to our likes and desires. But we learn how to find that place of ease and well-being or contentment no matter what's going on, whether it's stormy or whether it's sunny or whether our body's in pain or whether it's at ease. We come to taste that sense of freedom that's possible, as the Buddha said, the peace beyond conditions. The peace beyond conditions. The highest happiness that's not dependent on things being a certain way, not dependent on whether we like the lunch or not, whether we like the meditation or not, whether we like what's happening, blowing through our mind and hearts. But that sense of stability and poise and profound acceptance. So he writes, he doesn't write, the Buddha didn't write, but (laughs) he says, (laughs) maybe he did, who knows. What now is this noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the complete fading away and the extinction of craving, of wanting, of grasping, its forsaking and release, its liberation. It's the ending of this movement of the heart of greed, the extinction of hate, the eradication of delusion. This is Nibbana. And thus, for a disciple thus freed in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done and nothing more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, or tastes, or contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. One is steadfast in mind, gained is deliverance. Gained is deliverance. So, and we have glimpses of this. This is not, you know, I love the teaching from Achan Buddha Dasa where he says, there's Nibbana and then we have moments of Nibbana. We all have moments where we taste where the force of greed, of grasping, of resistance, aversion, of delusion, where they momentarily fade. There's this cloudy, there's openness. And we, we get a t- we taste, we get an intimation of that possibility of peace, of freedom, of ease. So let's sit for a few moments.
This is it. Right here. Is there a leaning toward or against anything? Or simply resting in the middle of what is? Thank you for your practice.